You can take your Bibles and uh, turn to one of the hardest books in the Bible to find, uh, the book of Genesis. It's uh, the very first book of the Bible. And uh, we're going to read uh, just a single verse from uh, chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I just uh, want to let you know that, as you can see on the screen, that we're starting a new uh, series, Jesus um, Through the Scriptures. And uh, it's just a short four-week series that will end at the end of the year. And then uh, we'll pick up uh, with a series in the Old Testament starting in, um, uh, in January. Um, the text uh, today is uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As we consider uh, various ways in which Jesus, um, in his humanity, is revealed to us uh, in the scriptures. God, speaking to the serpent, says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Our God and Father, I thank you for this time now that we can um, come to your word. And uh, it's an opportunity for us to do what the uh, author of Hebrews invites us to do, and that is to consider Jesus. It's a text, Father, that Um, is a profound text and yet one that maybe we haven't reflected on or spent a lot of time in. I pray, Father, that uh, it would be beneficial for us to have uh, talked about this passage and thought about it this morning and then to carry it with us um, through this coming week. Make the book live for us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, Advent is a reminder uh, of the coming of Jesus. And as we uh, have these uh, candles lit, and as we uh, give a small explanation each week, it's to remind us of two things. One, that Jesus Christ has come already. He's come as Emmanuel, God with us. But also to instill in us the reality that Jesus is coming again. And uh, that's why we want to remind you of this in a focused way for the next four weeks. And this passage in which we are going to spend our time this morning is an Advent passage. It does tell us about the coming of Jesus, uh, the first coming of Jesus. And it's in this Christmas season, and I, I think it fits very well, because there's always something unexpected about Christmas. I think even if you have been expecting it for months, there's still uh, an element of unexpectedness. And I think it's not just the presents, um, although we do anticipate presents from time to time. I also think that it's because we anticipate seeing a new glimpse of the grace of God in the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, uh, to us. God's grace is always unexpected. It comes to us in those circumstances when we sort of are least prepared for it or are least expecting it. And so whenever we catch even just a small glimpse of what Christmas means, which I hope we will catch today, the message of grace is always there somehow, in some way, uh, to surprise us. But I think we should never be surprised that this is the case when we talk about Jesus Christ. You can find him woven throughout the scripture, biblical references to his coming, uh, to his birth, um, The Old Testament is dotted with prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ, and they all have this characteristic. They they are surrounded, or they are um, uh, in the context of unexpected grace. 
And when we think about this passage that we have just read together this morning from Genesis chapter 3, 15, the last place in the world that we would expect to find grace is here. And it here, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of curses to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, we find grace. That the scene of judgment is beautifully helped, I guess, by this understanding of grace. Many of you are familiar with the story of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 in particular. There's a garden. The garden has been a wonderful gift of God to Adam and Eve and should be to all of humanity. It's a picture of what God intended them through their uh, prosperity to turn the whole world into. In that garden was a provision of every need and every desire that mankind could ever have. But there was a single command of a tree that was like every other tree in the garden, nothing specific about it, nothing unique about it, but a fruit-bearing tree that came with a single command of God that they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was simply to be an opportunity for them to trust God, to not understand why he gave that command, to not understand what was the background of that command, but simply to trust God to accept his gracious, bountiful provision with all of the other trees and things that he had provided, but to trust God and not eat of the fruit of that tree. Most of us, though, know what comes next. Satan used a serpent to deceive Eve. The serpent's deception and lies were successful. He was able to convince the woman that God did not have her best interests in mind. She ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sinned. And then the serpent used the best of God's gift to man, the woman, to deceive him. And he sinned as well. And in an instant, everything changed. God, who was the creator of everything that was very good, now appears in the garden as a judge. And each of the three parties, the woman, the man, and the snake, are brought before the bench of God's judgment to hear his pronouncement upon them. And here in these three curses, I believe we find the seedbed for all the trouble, all the hurt, all the pain that we continue to experience today that the world has ever experienced. As these individuals were awaiting for God to speak, it must have been a terrifying moment for them. Not understanding wrath, not understanding judgment, but yet realizing that they had disobeyed God. God would pronounce upon them judgments that were perfectly suited for their disobedience. But in these judgments, there is grace. We see it first to Adam and Eve that God had said to them that the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will die. But there's grace in that God clothes them. There's grace in that God comes to the garden to find them and speak to them. And then there's grace even in the pronouncements because they don't die immediately. But God says to the woman, and it's a, a, a something that is with all women today, that there would be pain in childbearing. And I believe that the second part of that curse is that there would be pain in their family life. And then to the man, he says that you will have pain in you're working in the earth, your provision of a livelihood and your provision for your family, and then you will die and you will return to dust. But wonder of all wonders, 
God says that he will also bring a deliverer. He will bring a savior. He will bring one who will reverse the act of their disobedience. And again, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the unexpected wonder of grace. This is a, 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 a glimpse of the provision of God for the need of mankind. It's the unexpected wonder of, the ver of Christmas in its very first form, its very um, primordial form, if we could put it that way. And as one individualist says, with the possi uh, possible exception of John 3.16, which most of us could uh, uh, quote today, with the possible exception of John 3.16, no verse is more critical and definitive than that of Genesis 3.15. Why such a lofty description of this verse? Why place it alongside of John 3.16? Well, in this verse, we have the first messianic prophecy. We have the first announcement of a Savior to come. In this particular verse, we have what we now call the proto-evangelism, which is the first expression of the gospel, the good news of a Savior that will come and will deliver us from our sin and our terrible, horrible situation. It contains the earliest promise of the coming of Jesus Christ when Jesus, or when God says to the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a prophecy that the coming of Jesus will come at the climax of an extended conflict. The Old Testament hopes of a great rescuer, of a great redeemer, start here. And in this very verse, we have the seedbed of the gospel. And it begins with an unexpected gift of grace. It's the gift of conflict. And it's something that we read over very quickly and forget or we miss. But if you read the Bible and you uh, you think about it and you underline it, you see that it's something that God gives. He says, I will put enmity. This is a sovereign gift of God. This is a, this is a, a divine gift of God into the situation. I will put enmity. Now, enmity is not a word that we use very often in conversation today. I doubt many of you have used it this past month, if at all. But we are familiar with words like ill will or hostility towards or even stronger than that, hatred, or mutual antagonism. But we wonder to ourselves, well, how can this be a grace? How can enmity be anything but um, negative in our experience? Well, here in this text, though, we find a beneficial enmity, a beneficial hostility, if you would put it that way. And it's one that God introduces into the picture here. God introduces a hostility between the woman and the serpent. God introduces a hostility between two humanities, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. God introduces a hostility between the evil one and Satan and between Christ himself. And this hostility is part of God's gracious gift of preservation and provision for the safety and security of his people. There's a lot that you and I can be thankful for at Christmas, and we 
accentuate those things. We accentuate joy and love and happiness and peace and all of those that are tied to the coming of Jesus Christ. But we should not also not forget the hostility that surrounds the coming of Jesus Christ. The hostility that reminds us or should remind us about the sorrow of sin's ways in our life, about the misery that sin has introduced into the world, uh, the way that sin has ensnared us by its reach. When we sin, we find ourselves conflicted. And loved ones, that is a good thing. That is a gift of God. We like our sin, but we want to be free of its consequences. We want to sin, but we don't want to have a troubled conscience that comes after it. We want to go to hell happy, but God will not let us do that. God makes us miserable. And he sets up an antagonism between ourselves and Satan, which modifies the sin or the hold that sin has on us and makes it possible for us to hear the righteous call of God in our lives. As I think about this hostility, I think in my head that it's um, a little bit uh, like maybe um, the hostility that we experience between darkness and light. It's a hostility that makes us aware of wickedness and righteousness. It's a hostility that makes us aware of evil and good. It's an awareness that God gives that we wouldn't normally or naturally have. And so we see this hostility now worked out in a number of different uh, relationships. The first is the conflict between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent and Eve. Well, it's not immediately clear if you were only to read Genesis 3.15. Behind this snake is Satan. It is him who is the influencer behind the actions of the snake. John leaves no room for doubt about that when we get to the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 12. There John describes for us this snake now in its fullest form. He says, And the great dragon was thrown down from heaven. The ancient serpent, there is the reference, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth. And then Paul is also very clear in his understanding of who Genesis chapter, who is referred to in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he writes to the Romans Christians and he says to them, Now the God of peace, or may the God of peace, soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a clear reference here to Genesis chapter 3, 15, and a direct judgment or a direct reference to the judgment of God passed on the serpent. In the first place, we find this enmity is then between Eve and Satan. And I think uh, in a particular way, we might find it in all women. It's enmity towards this snake and Satan. It wasn't something that Eve initially had. Strange, though, she didn't initially have this reaction to this snake or to Satan. She was naive. She was unafraid of it. She spoke with it. She listened with it. She didn't run from it. She didn't jump away from it. She had no fear of it. But it was God's gracious provision to now establish an enmity or a hostility between her and the snake. No longer could she have a neutral relationship with it. 
And I think today that most women have this natural enmity or hostility towards actual snakes. And I believe that that is part of God's reminder or illustration of the natural enmity and hostility that we should now have or you should now have towards Satan. But I wondered about another woman, singular, and I don't know if this is the right way to wonder because I couldn't find it in any of the books that I looked at, but it makes sense to me. And so I'll give it to you. Could it be that this is also a reference to Eve or to Mary? That I will put enmity between you and Mary. As we know, the Bible describes just this incredible and intense conflict between Mary and Satan. We find this word woman used a few times in the New Testament, which I think are references that take us back to Genesis 3.15. The first is Galatians 4.4, where Paul there reminds the Galatian Christians that when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. I think that is clearly a reference back to Genesis 3.15. And it's enmity that would begin in her womb. And it came through the person of Joseph, who after he found out that Mary was pregnant, not knowing that she was the, the child in her had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, thought that she had committed adultery and wanted to put her away. And so already there is hostility that has been made itself known from Joseph towards his wife. Then shortly after the birth of Jesus, you remember how Herod made a decree that all the children under two years of age in the vicinity of Nazareth were to be put to death. But God, in his mercy, reminded or told Joseph of this in a dream, and they flee to Egypt. And then they return to Nazareth a few years later. But the last book of the Bible also describes this conflict. It's a startling chapter, chapter 12 of Revelation, and I want to read a portion of it because I think it helps us understand this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I think John is referring back to Genesis 3.15 and developing for us the theme of conflict and hostility 
that had been introduced there. And then John, in his gospel, unlike any of the other gospel writers, picks up this language of a woman again. And you might recall twice in the gospel of John how in the beginning, in chapter 4, his mother comes to him as he's about to start his earthly uh, ministry. And he's gone to this wedding in the Cana of Galilee, and they had ran out of wine. And uh, his mother comes to him and asks him to do something. And you remember his rather, it appears to us, harsh reference to his mother. And he says, woman, this is not my time. And you think, what in the world? Like, that's not a very kind way to speak to your mother. And then you come to the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 19. And there you find Jesus as he's on the cross and he's breathing his last few breaths. It says, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman. Behold your son. Why does John give us these two references, one at the beginning of his gospel and the other at the end of his gospel concerning the Jesus' Jesus's ministry? I wonder, as some have said, that if this doesn't point us back to Genesis 3.15 again. And could John be saying something like, don't you see what is happening? Jesus sees that he is the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. It's a reminder here of the God-given destiny. After all, John's gospel teaches us on the, that on the cross of Calvary, our Lord Jesus Christ did, in fact, crush the head of the serpent. And so there's this hostility that is introduced into the relationship of, between the serpent and the woman. And then he says, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. An enmity between two humanities. Here we realize that the conflict now is not only a personal conflict between the serpent and the woman, but it's also now a conflict between two offspring. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. It's a corporate reality. There is now a divinely um, 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 created animosity between two peoples, the people of God and the people who are not of God. What are we to make of this word offspring? Have you ever thought about that in Genesis 3.15? Well, who are the offspring of Satan? Who are the offspring of, of Eve? What is this conflict that God is, is introducing here? Some choose to restrict the meaning of offspring of the serpent to angels that fell in line with Satan. This would mean then that the conflict is uh, between spiritual beings that fell and abandoned their rightful place in heaven and humanity. I don't think this is right because I, I don't think Satan has had offspring. I don't think that he has reproduced in any way. I think the witness of scripture though divides the, or describes this conflict and the offspring as between two peoples. You might have remembered, as I just read from Revelation chapter 12, that the war that began when Satan was cast out of heaven and he came to earth and it's now being waged on earth and the dragon is furious and he continues his rampage against who? Against the rest of her offspring. Who are Eve's offspring? They are those who are God's children. We know who they are because John tells us he's those who keep the commandments of God and who hold the testimony of Jesus. Those are the offspring of the woman. But who are the offspring of Satan? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then in another uh, strange place, Jesus introduces a parable that describes the world. And he describes the world as a field with, with wheat and with tares in the field. And he says this, he says, the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And then in 1 John 3.10, John says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the offspring, it seems, that the Bible describes are those who are distinguished by their life, by their loyalty, by their lineages, lineage, by their testimony. The godly descendants of the man and woman are those who are influenced by God and serve God and worship God and obey God. The ungodly descendants of man and woman are those who have been influenced by Satan and serve Satan and worship Satan. There's a divinely created animosity between these two humanities. That's one that primarily can be seen in darkness and light, as I've already said, between, between knowing good and evil, between wickedness and righteousness. But that hostility does overflow into physical hostility. We can trace it as early as Genesis chapter 4, between Cain and Abel. As Cain, unwilling to listen to God, unwilling to, to, to deal with sin that is crouching before him, unwilling to acknowledge his, 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 his gift that wasn't what God had demanded, rather than acknowledge that, he goes and he kills his brother Abel. We see it in the flood as we have most of humanity that is characterized by those who every thought, every imagination, every action is always evil all the time towards God. And then between Noah and between them and between Noah, who was known as a man of righteousness. We see it in the Tower of Babel as man seeks to build his kingdom over against God. It's in the story of Egypt and Israel as, as the Egyptians try and crush the Israelites. We see it in the story of Job as one individual is pitted against the evil one. We see it in the story of Esther and Haman as Haman tries to destroy Esther and the people of God. We see it in the story of, of David and Goliath. We see it in the story of Babylon and Jerusalem. We see it in the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. It's the story of the woman who had been crippled with the disease for 18 years. It's the story of why there is so much enmity towards the church today and has been throughout the world. It's a God-given hostility that distinguishes two humanities or two offspring. It's the story of the ages that begins to unfold here in Genesis 3.15. Loved ones, Genesis 3.15 opens wide the door of understanding why this world is in the state it is, why this world is in such a mess. Genesis chapter 3 is this incredible chapter that explains how we get from chapter 2, which at the end of it, God describes all that he has made as very good. And then when we get to chapter 4, we have murder and deceit and the world just going awful. How do we get from 2 to 4? Chapter 3 describes that transition for us. And we get this final conflict then between an individual from the seed of the woman 
and the serpent itself. We think of Advent um, and the coming of Jesus. John, First uh, John three eight, gives us one of the reasons why Jesus came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And we see that illustrated in Genesis three fifteen. It's this final hostility that is described for us, and it's one between Jesus and Satan. It's a personal one now. Started with with the serpent and Eve, and then it went corporately to two humanities, and now it zeroes in on Jesus Christ and on Satan. The heel of Jesus would be bruised, meaning great devastation would be brought to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, incredible pain and suffering, but he would recover from it. To the same bruising action, though, that would be committed to the serpent's head, which would bring about his demise and his end. There's great hope in this text. There's incredible hope in this text, and it can be summarized in two words. God wins. That's what Genesis 3.15 is telling us already in this seedbed form. God wins. It's because of that that we have this incredible, incredible hope. This uh, conflict is described in many different ways in the Scripture. Jesus himself refers to it when he says, listen, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is because of his promises, his father's promise back in Genesis 3.15. This is a great way of looking at the Gospels. It was helpful for me to be refreshed in my own thinking of this. The Gospels are wonderful descriptions of God in human flesh. But the Gospels describe for us in living color this conflict and hostility. From beginning to end, they are intensely personal as they describe this conflict, this bruising that God said would take place. The Gospels seem to be saying to us something like this. Do you see in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ the promise of the conflict that is coming to reach its climatic point in his death? Do you see in the Gospels how the hatred of Satan towards Jesus is manifest in so many different ways? We've already mentioned just a few of them. We, we mentioned how it began even in the womb as, 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 as Satan tried to thwart the plan of this Savior by getting Joseph to divorce his wife. We see how Satan instigated Herod to destroy all the two-year-olds in the area of Nazareth with the hopes of killing this one that was to conflict with him. We see it in the public ministry of Jesus as he was called or led by the Spirit out in the world to be tempted. There in the wilderness he was to come face to face with Satan, have this incredible conflict of who would ultimately win the loyalty of Jesus Christ. We find in another place that Jesus was in a town speaking and the people were so hostile and agitated by him that they drive him out of the city and intend to push him over the edge of a cliff. That's this conflict being instigated by Satan himself. We see this conflict illustrated in a boat in a little in a sea in the middle of the night as all of a sudden they're, they're, they leave and they're in peace and calm and all of a sudden there's a storm that even seasoned sailors are just frightened silly that they're all going to die. What is the source of that storm? I'm convinced it was part of this conflict. 
and Satan's attempt to bruise the heel of Christ. We see it in the religious leaders who constantly fought to have Jesus killed. One of the books that I found very helpful and will help me in this series is a book written by Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson. And they ask specifically, they talk about demonic encounters and they say, um, why were there so many demonic encounters recorded in the gospel? It says, the reason there is so much demonic possession in the time period recorded in the gospels is not, as is sometimes assumed, that demon possession was commonplace then. In fact, it was not. Rather, the, the land then was demon-invaded because the Savior was marching to the promise of Genesis 3.15, and all hell was let loose in order to withstand him. And then they go on to describe this uh, situation where Jesus is um, accosted by this man in Gadara whose life was one of incredible pain and hurt and bondage and misery. Nobody had been able to help him. Nobody had been able to restrain him. Nobody had been able to control him. Nobody had been able to clothe him. And Jesus speaks to him with such gentleness. What is your name? And he replies, we are Legion. Or my name is Legion, for we are many. Some of you may know that a Roman legion consisted of anywhere between four and 5,000 soldiers. This man is saying, listen, thousands of demons have taken up residence in my life. But Beg and Ferguson asked the question, they said, do you think that it takes that many demons to ruin a human life? Absolutely not. It only takes one. Why have so many demons invaded this particular man's life? Because Jesus is there. Because of this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This is not simply a poor man, they write, possessed by a legion of demons. That would be an extravagant deployment of forces Satan could never afford. No, not this man, but the destruction of Jesus' ministry is the ultimate target. And you remember how Jesus addressing demons in another situation as they're having this, uh, as Jesus is let them talk, they say to him, have you come to destroy us? It was an illustration of this great conflict that even Peter was pulled into. And Judas was pulled into. The whole account of the Gospels illustrates Genesis 3.15 in this conflict that was to happen between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And then we have the final bruising. Two victories of a sort. How does Jesus crush the head of the serpent and destroy his influence? We're reminded of this at the table. He does it on a tree of a different sort. Through a temptation that had no appeal to him whatsoever. On a tree in which Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where the bruising of Satan was ultimately and finally unleashed on Jesus Christ. And that was on the cross. Satan finally succeeded, or so it seems, at striking back at God and ending this conflict once and for all. What a bruising it was. The taunts of the religious leaders. The pain and torture inflicted by the Roman soldiers as they crucified him. The ruling elites that spoke against him and handed him over to death. And yet we know, do we not, that it was only a bruising. 
It wasn't a final defeat. For on the third day, God raised him from the dead. But what about Satan? It must have been an extraordinary couple hours as Satan rejoiced in what he thought was his victory. But had he forgotten Genesis 3.15? He of all people should have known that God is a God of his word, that God can no, God not go back on his promises, that everything that God utters will come to pass. He should have known that God's word was sure. He himself had been the recipient of being cast out of heaven. He should have known that the word of God would never fail. For the prophecy which, he, uh, which had said that he would indeed bruise the seed of the woman heel had also said that his head would be crushed. So while Satan was triumphing in victory, the full weight of the atonement was being accomplished. And it would come crushing down upon him and defeat him once and forevermore. See, what Satan failed to see, and what it would take a number of years after the resurrection of Jesus to see clearly, is how God, through these circumstances, could be both the just and the justifier of all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He failed to see how Jesus would take the place of sinners and bear their punishment and how he, Satan, would have his power broken in the process. I find it fascinating, John Gershner's words. These are maybe old words. Um, John Gershner is a theologian long deceased. But he writes this. He said, Satan is the greatest blockhead the world has ever known. The very fact that this is probably the most intelligent being ever created makes him the greatest blockhead. For he was supremely stupid to suppose that he could outwit the all-wise and overpower the almighty. And so right here, loved ones, in Genesis 3, thousands of years before the events of the crucifixion of Jesus ever took place, God determined this incredible outcome, which we are going to celebrate in a couple moments. And while the outcome is certain because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the defeat of Satan has taken place, as Revelation describes, until the actual V-Day, Satan is out waging war against the people of God. And this is then where we cling to the promise that Paul gave to the Roman believers that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And how does he do that? Well, John tells us how he does that. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. Loved ones, this is an incredible word of grace tucked away in the midst of the context of judgment. May God help us to be thankful for the enmity and the hostility that he has created, which helps us now actually understand good from evil, which helps us see that our salvation is found in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your word today and for its help. Uh, in explaining life to us. It's help in explaining you and your ways with us. It's help in helping us understand how you have won the victory, the ultimate victory, the eternal victory for us. I pray, Father, that um, there would be great thanksgiving in our hearts as we reflect on this and consider Jesus Christ. 
The one who came to earth and was bruised in such a devastating way, but was not defeated. Thank you for the victory that is ours also in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.